0: Essentially, you'll hear the stories you won't find on their professional bios. And of course, you'll learn a bit about their practice. Now, let's get to the episode. Today, I'm speaking with Phil Phillips. Phil is the managing partner of Foley's Detroit office, where he's also a longtime member of the firm's labor and employment practice. As usual for the path in the practice, this is a wide-ranging conversation. We start off with Phil sharing about growing up the youngest of nine kids and growing up in the projects of Saginaw, Michigan. Phil tells us how he always knew he wanted to go to law school, but that there were some twists and turns along the way, which included him being an inpatient psychiatric counselor, a juvenile probation officer, and a prosecutor, all before joining Foley. Phil also shares a lot about his practice. He talks about the wide variety of labor and employment matters that he works on and how he assists clients as a trusted advisor and counselor. Additionally. Phil reflects on being a Black equity partner in big law and shares about how being a law firm partner does not at all insulate him from the experiences of being a Black man in America. We conclude our conversation with Phil providing some wonderful advice about mentoring and sponsoring attorneys of color, as well as providing some great insight for law students contemplating a legal career. I hope you enjoy our conversation. Hi, Phil. Welcome to the show.
1: Hi, thank you. Thanks for having me.
0: As I do with everyone, I need you to start by giving your professional introduction.
1: Okay. Name is Phil Phillips. I am a partner in Detroit's in Foley and Lardner's Detroit office. I practice labor and employment law, and I've been with Foley almost 20 years.
0: Well, as you know, but I'll just say to that, that listener, I'm very excited. I'm always excited for every discussion that I have. But with you, I feel like I've picked up tidbits of your life before legal that I cannot wait to hear the full story. But we will have to start at the very beginning, which is where are you from? Where did you grow up?
1: Yeah, interesting background. I'm born and raised in Saginaw, Michigan. I'm the youngest of nine. I have five brothers, three sisters. My family's originally from Atlanta, uh, migrated to Michigan in the 50s, and I was born in the 60s. So of the nine, half were born in Atlanta, another half were born in, in Saginaw, Michigan. And I still have a lot of family. My oldest brother is a retired school administrator in Atlanta.
0: Uh, So the only reason that I have some concept for Saginaw is because my husband's from Flint, Michigan.
1: Okay. Down the street.
0: That's right. So I do know his parents have since moved, but that was only about four years ago. So I do have some appreciation for that, that part of Michigan. And also that shared like black folks migrating from the South, North. So my family's all from South Carolina. Oh, understood. <laughs> yes. That dichotomy. So I grew up in the north. So I was like the weird one in my family. But okay, so Saginaw, Michigan, one of nine. Give me a peek. What is that like? What's it like growing up?
1: Well, Saginaw was, was kind of interesting. I, I tell my kids, I have 13-year-old twins, boy and a girl, and I tell them and family that they're growing up in a world that I didn't know exists, because they're growing up in a in a nice, let's say a nice plush environment because their father's a the lawyer, their mother's a the doctor, and, and and life is good. So in that respect. I grew up the youngest of nine in the projects of Saginaw. So, but one thing that taught me though even though we, you know, I jokingly say I was raised on peanut butter and jelly sandwiches is really true. I was. Mm-hmm. But, you know, one thing it taught me with the importance of uh, was family, right? That even though we we didn't actually even realize how poor we were frankly because it was just every so was the folks next door and across the street and around the corner. I really didn't get a real sense of what was going on in, in the real world outside of Saginaw or, or even Flint until I actually went away to college, to Emory University of Atlanta, Georgia. So then I really got a sense because like Flint, Saginaw is a was really a heavy automotive town. And so if you were able to land a job in a plant, in the plant, one of the automotive plants, for GM, or Chrysler, and if you were able to become a foreman or a supervisor, you struck gold. You were set. You were set. You were set for life. Right. So that that really was the goal because and which was fine. Those are very, very nice careers to have. But it's all you saw. You never really saw anything outside of, of that level of success. So if you had a nice job in the plant, a nice home, nice car, you're pretty much set. And those were jobs that back then paid very, very well. Not so much now. And you could really have, I mean, the auto industry basically created the middle class, right, for African-Americans, particularly in Michigan. And so that was really the goal until I was able to see some different things. So.
0: Oh, I have a couple follow-up questions. I don't know which way to go on that. <laughs> sure. Just let me go back to the one of nine. Right. And you said in the projects of Saginaw. So it's not like you had some, you know, eight bedroom house. <laughs> so I
1: just- could tell you. I can tell, tell you, Go on. one day I was in Saginaw with my kids and I wanted them to see, because they live in a, you know, a nice house now. So I, I wanted them to kind of see the house I grew up in or one of the houses you grew up. When you're poor, you, you grow up in a lot of houses, right? <laughs> in apartments and, and things like that. And I'll talk about that a little bit more, but I drove them past our house that we grew up in. You know, like I say, youngest of nine, It was three bedrooms, one bathroom. The kids have no concept of that. They have their own bathrooms, right? One bathroom and the house, it would be a stretch if I said the house was 800 square feet. Mm. But again, you just didn't realize the size of the house. But now when I drive past it, you could tell they just look like one bathroom. How, how is that possible?
0: So there's like a boy's bedroom and a girl's bedroom, right? If it's three bedrooms, is that the split.
1: Exactly. And by the time I was old enough to to kind of you know realize what was going on and where we lived, two of my brothers, my oldest brothers, were both drafted into Vietnam. One was actually in Vietnam fighting and one was actually stationed in in Germany. So he didn't actually fight, but my oldest brother, the retired school administrators actually, you know, actually fought in Vietnam. So when those two were gone, there were four of us left, right? Four or four boys. And of course in this tight little room we had bunk bags. Mm-hmm. So there were two sets of bakes, actually. So it was like two brothers over here and and two brothers two brothers over there. And then the three sisters were in a separate room as well.
0: I will I will move on from just asking about your siblings, but first I am curious: what's the age spread between the nine?
1: The age spread is: I'm the youngest. My oldest brother is, I think he's 19 years older than, than me, right? Which is why when I told one of my colleagues, he yeah, had my oldest brother. Fought in Vietnam. He said, Well, you don't seem old enough to have a brother who fought in Vietnam. I was like, Well, yeah, when there was an 18, 19 year age spread, he certainly is old enough to to have been drafted. So
0: that's also sort of why I asked, though, but what tremendous perspective that brings for you. Right. All right. You mentioned you go to Emory. How did that, did most of your siblings go out of state to college? Like, give me a sense of that dynamic. And then how did that happen for you?
1: How it happens is the connection was Atlanta, right? And one of my brothers, who I'll share this piece. The family, when I was probably in the fifth grade, going to the sixth, the family got split up. Where you know I had an older brother, my oldest brother in Atlanta, and my oldest sister in Saginaw. Half the siblings stay with him, and the other half, three of my brothers and two of my brothers and one sister went went to stay with my oldest brother in Atlanta. It's because we had the Georgia connection. And that's where the family's from. So one of my brothers ended up going to Emory undergrad, and this is why I was still in high school. So he went to Emory, met his wife at Emory, did incredibly well. I mean, off, let's put it this way. I've met a lot of successful people in my career, in my life, lawyers, doctors. I've never seen a resume, and I didn't think I was going to mention this, but now you, you brought it to memory. I've never seen a resume like this guy. He was four years. We didn't overlap at Emory. When I started at Emory, he had graduated like the year before, but he went to Emory. He went to high school in Atlanta. I think it was uh, maybe Douglas High School in Atlanta. He went to Emory. In four years at Emory, he graduated with a bachelor's degree in theology, a bachelor's degree in chemistry, and a master's in organic chemistry.
0: In four years. four years. And you said this was a like a brother's? This is my
1: brother. He's four years older than me.
0: Oh, my gosh. Oh, my gosh. OK. So
1: My oldest brother actually went to Morehouse College in, in, in Atlanta. But this brother who, after he graduated, he went, he went to Emory. So in four years, he got three degrees, including a master's, which, which is insane, right? So when I got to Emory and they said, you're Preston Phillips' brother, I said, I'm here for one degree. <laughs> <laughs> I am not Preston. I think he studied more in high school than I probably did in law school. I mean, he was just off the charts. So after he finished at at Emory, and this is why I say his resume is is off the charts, and I've actually mentioned this to Jay Rothman and a few others. He got accepted to Harvard Medical School, graduated with honors from Harvard Medical School. He left Harvard, went to Yale, and did a four-year residency in orthopedic surgery, and then went back to Harvard and did a one-year fellowship in spinal surgery. And so this is this poor guy from Saginaw who used to push carts at Kmart, you know, during during the summer. So so talk about motivation, right? As to what you can accomplish for somebody growing up in the project. So that's kind of his story, which is why when I went to Emory, I said, I'm just playing old Phil. Like, I'm just me.
0: I know, yeah, that's my brother. I'm here
1: for one one degree. That's for sure. So
0: I'm really fascinated by that though, because yeah. there's a couple things. One, I'm an only child. So saying that you're one of nine, that's a whole different thing for me. But also it's interesting to me when you get certain really high achieving individuals and families who make others who are also doing very well and also high achievers just look like they're like, so for you, you're like, I just got one degree at Emory. Oh,
1: yeah, exactly. exactly. I, I'm just, I'm just a lawyer. <laughs> it's only a learner, right? It's so well, funny, right?
0: But so as you said that Being back in Atlanta sounds like a big catalyst for that, because I will say there is a bit of a gap between, you know, nine kids, as you said, in the projects in Saginaw to attending Emory, you know, sibling, attending Morehouse, attending Harvard, attending Yale. That's pretty incredible. That got closed for at least a number of your siblings. That's that's something.
1: Right. It definitely was not, let's say, foreseeing growing up. No one would ever guess. Even when I mentioned to friends or school counselors that I want to be a lawyer. I mean, the negative response was Mm -hmm. incredibly disappointing. I'll put it that way. But but I was one of the fortunate ones that had enough role models, obviously in the family as well as outside the family to kind of make me realize that, you know, you just have to ignore certain people when it comes to them kind of, you know, stepping on your dreams or whatever. And my oldest brother, I mean, if he had his way, we all would have been doctors so he could retire. I mean, he basically was. And I was pre-med for a semester, but that changed very quickly.
0: I appreciate you sharing that because that's, of course, an incredible story, but it is worth pausing to say that doesn't mean it was easy. Oh, not at all. Just because all this achieved doesn't mean it was simple.
1: Not at all. Yeah, it was definitely, definitely difficult. And, you know, but you just saw what was possible because you have people riding your family who were just, even though... If you compare yourself to to that one brother, I mean, you're gonna you're gonna probably fall short. So you really <laughs> you really can't compare yourself to his, because he was actually he was actually the first person, black or white or any race in Emory's history to have done that. Wow. So he, yeah. So you can't measure your success by him. Well,
0: I'll change gears from talking about your brother, who I don't want to call him the overachieving brother, but I guess the right. overachieving brother, <laughs> to right, the right, regular right. achieving, but still achieving. I guess not right, to say that right. just you know merely going to law school to be go on to be a partner in a law firm is you know no, no big deal. But when was that seed planted for you? With like, what did you think you were going to do when you went to Emory? What was the goal? What was the degree you were focused on?
1: From high school, it was it was always the law. You know, I just it's just something I was interested in. I, I like debating. Even as a young kid, I appreciated you know how lawyers can actually argue two sides of the same issue and be equally equally persuasive. So. But my actual goal, if you talk to me right before, and I could talk about my interesting path to Foley, because it definitely was not your traditional, you know, undergrad to law school.
0: we're covering, we're going to do all of that. I want all of that. (laughs) Right,
1: right. It it wasn't your typical, you know, undergrad to law school to big law firm. But it was just an interesting path where I actually wanted to be a politician. You know, knock on wood, thank God. I I did not think
0: you were going to say that, but go on.
1: (laughs) Yeah, it was interesting because when I was a prosecutor, Right. Now, we, we could talk about that later, too. When I was a prosecutor and I was interacting with a lot of judges and politicians, and I knew the mayor of Saginaw. And, and I was like, OK, this is kind of what I want to do. I want to come back to the community and, and make a difference. And actually, so when I went to law school at Syracuse, in addition to pursuing my law degree, I also pursued my master's in public administration thinking, Okay, that will give me some skill set once mm-hmm. I go back into the public sector as a prosecutor, then maybe or a judge or or senator or state senator or something like that. And but the more and more I learned about politics, the more I was like, it just wasn't for me.
0: Okay, allow me to <laughs> recap. You went right. to Emory, knowing the law was what you wanted to focus on. Right. You go to Syracuse for law school. Also, go ahead and get your master's. And I think you said public administration. Public
1: administration. Yes.
0: And then out of law school, what was the first rollout out of law school?
1: The first role out of law school was prosecutor. I was an assistant prosecutor in, in Saginaw for approximately two years. Okay, and that was kind of a almost piggybacking off what I did before law school because before law school, between undergraduate at Emory and Syracuse Law School, I I took off four years because I just was not ready. To go directly to got
0: it. Thank you for clarifying watch. that. <laughs> Tell me what and what did you do in those four years?
1: So after I finished from Emory, I majored in psychology. I actually went back to Saginaw, and I my first job, real job, other than you know dropping fries or something like that, was actually worked as a counselor at a inpatient, in-patient psychiatric unit. And being a guy, they often put me in the ICU. So I was actually a mental health counselor. Wow. For several months before I became a juvenile probation officer. And when I became a juvenile probation officer, I also kept the job on the weekends as a counselor at, at a mental health inpatient facility in Saginaw as well. So I was doing, I was doing both.
0: That is a lot. And um, I always say this, because when we record these podcasts, we can see each other. And of course, there's not video for the listeners. But my face, because I knew a little bit, I think I maybe knew the prosecutor part. I think I maybe knew the correctional officer side. I did not know the mental health counselor. (laughs) So I'm just learning more and more about, well, (laughs) you were working a lot, though, if you're doing the, Do you say juvenile corrections officer and also the mental health?
1: Yeah, I was a I started off full time as a mental health counselor on the site in the psych unit. And then I got the job as a juvenile probation officer. That was a full time job. So but I kept doing the mental health counselor, but just on the weekends. I basically was kind of on call on Saturdays and Sundays to actually go back to the hospital and work. And work on the psych unit. So
0: Now, we will move forward to learn more about your your path to Foley, but can you just tell me a little bit about what that was like? Because I think that experience is one that most people don't have, Right. and I can only sort of imagine the sort of things and issues you were exposed to. So if you could say a few words about that.
1: Sure, sure. First, uh, just tying into to me going to law school, even though I took off to four years, I knew I wanted to go to law school, but working as a juvenile probation officer, you're constantly working with lawyers, with the judges. It was remarkable how much the judge I worked for, as well as some of the lawyers who were handling juvenile cases, were, were, heard that I wanted to go to law school or heard me say it, and just motivated me to know, and It was like, you got to do it. And then one thing that kind of really tipped the balance for me was well, actually two things. One was one of the juvenile probation officers said, yeah, I remember 20 years ago, I wanted to go to law school. And I was like, I don't want to be telling that same story mm. <laughs> to another probation officer 20 years from now. So I was like, I got to go. I was single, no kids. I mean, I can survive on beans and bread.
0: <laughs> well, and we have the peanut butter and jelly established. <laughs> exactly, <you got> that.
1: <laughs> exactly. I can survive on peanut butter and jelly. It was just me, no responsibilities. I was like, if I don't do it now, I probably won't do it. So I had to get out of there. So there was definitely that, that, that motivation from people I was working around as well as, you know, sometimes you just have to step out there, right? Because mm-hmm. my one thing I learned is from even talking to friends who have gone back to school or want to go back to school is there's never a perfect time to do it. That's right. If you say that, well, I got to wait till I pay these bills. I got to wait till this go right. I got to wait till my kids register There's never a perfect time. You just have to jump in into it.
0: So that's what you did after four years. Exactly, jumped, jumped into law I school. I jumped
1: in. I you know, left my apartment, I got a U-Haul and, and drove to Syracuse, New York.
0: <laughs> I know this was a while ago, but how is that? Syracuse, that's not, you know, it's not going to New York City. It's going to Syracuse. For, and you had been in Michigan the entire time before right. that. Oh, no, you've been to Atlanta too, though. I sorry, apologies, for Emory.
1: Yeah, well, I, I tell people that Syracuse is not New York. Mm-hmm. Matter of fact, Syracuse is four hours from, from New York City. It's like the distance between Detroit and Chicago. It is not New York City. It's upstate New York. And I thought I saw a lot of snow when I was in Michigan. Yeah, you haven't seen anything until you <laughs> until you see the snow belt of, of upstate New York. My first winter there in three days, we got 31 inches of snow.
0: Wow. I did not expect you to say that.
1: Yeah, which is not. That shocking for Syracuse, the Syracuse-Rochester-Buffalo area. All those, it's only a few hours apart. This, uh, it's pretty amazing how much snow they get up there. So, so it was definitely a, it was definitely a, a an experience. You know, going, it was an experience too because, but I was so laser focused. It was unbelievable because I left my job, left my apartment, left, you know, job security and everything to kind of, you know, pursue this dream. So I was just so focused. It was, it was unbelievable.
0: That makes a lot of sense. And as you said, at that point, though, a political path was already on your mind, it sounds right. like, by the time you hit law school. So law school to, I think you said prosecutor? Yes. Assistant prosecutor for a couple of years. And then what happened?
1: Then I left the prosecutor's office and joined a, a big firm in Detroit, Miller Canfield, where I knew some of the lawyers there. And what motivated me or drew me there is that at the time, the practice group leader was a, a guy named Lynn Givens, who's African-American, who was just phenomenal, just a great mentor. And I kind of kept in touch with him and just remind every now and then I raised my hand and say, hey, I'm here in Saginaw waiting on you to get me out of this city. <laughs> and one day he called and said, we actually we actually have a spot. Right. Because they had a spot for me before, but based on someone moving over to the firm and I would support them and then that fell through. So we, we kind of kept in touch and he brought me aboard. And I was at Miller Canfield practicing labor and employment law, all, all employer side, like I do now, and was there for three years uh, to the day. And actually worked uh, with uh, one of our other Foley partners, Dalgie Dougal, who was also at Miller Canfield. Oh. And we actually left Miller Canfield the same day and started at Foley the same day, but didn't know the other was coming until we were here in Detroit. And that was about four months after Foley opened the Detroit office
0: you didn't know you see each other. You're like, Hey, I didn't, we (laughs) could have, we could have coordinated. Well, and how does labor employment, why labor employment?
1: Well, a couple of reasons. One is, and it gets into the, you know, one of my motivations for, for going to law school is I always wanted to understand the law and also wanted to know my rights. I mean, that was just important to me to just be able to understand the law and not have anyone pull anything over on me. You know, and I also like the thought of being advocates for others, because sometimes, you know, when friends have issues, sometimes all it takes is a call from a lawyer. No one wants to deal with lawyers. Mm-hmm. So but labor and employment was, frankly, the only area of law that actually I thought would be interesting. You are dealing <laughs> with people, you deal after being a prosecutor, you know, like everything's boring. Right. <laughs>
0: <That's And really laughs>
1: funny. With all due respect to my corporate and other colleagues, uh, this is all I can do. I mean, because I, I, you're dealing with people, you're dealing with real issues. You helping company try to resolve these issues. And frankly, even though some friends will call me and say, you know what, I'm looking for a lawyer, I say, Well, I only represent I only represent corporations. And then they'll make a couple of cracks about that. But but what we try to do is we don't just defend companies, right? We try to ensure that companies do the right thing, Mm -hmm. you know, by their employees, right? So we basically try to help them guide them and advise them to make sure they're complying with the law, not just not just in a defense mode and defending, you know, say behavior or conduct that wouldn't otherwise be acceptable. So
0: absolutely. Well, and I try hard not to make these podcasts too much about me, but just to make this a little bit about me, what you just said really resonated with me because when I was practicing initially, I was attracted to litigation because I just didn't understand corporate work. I was like, Nah, I don't, I don't understand. And I always, I thought even in law school, that labor and employment was what I really wanted to do. Of course, I Mm -hmm. spent a good six years being very general commercial with the touch of labor and employment, but I had a similar view, which was like, it's about people. At least I know what's going on. And then ultimately right. for given the work that I now do, it's sort of no surprise because I continue now to just be about the people minus the actual law side of things. But I really appreciated your description because I I shared that. And I also think in this podcast, I have to try very hard to have an equal representation of litigators and, and right, corporate folks. Right. But people will start to see my bias a little bit because right now I'm a little, <laughs> I'm a little litigator heavy, I'm a little employment right, heavy. Right. <laughs> right. But no, that, that makes a lot of sense. But So you started as a prosecutor, and then when you joined Miller Canfield, though, did, were you automatically slotted to join L&E, or did you have to do some work to get into that group?
1: No, I, I was hired specifically in the labor and employment d- okay. department, and, and it was a, because it was such interesting work, it was a easy transition. And I knew, it was also a, kind of a humbling transition because, and we have some colleagues here who... Been former prosecutors and then joined as as associates. I say it's humbling because you go from trying cases. You know, I tried every kind of case you could think of, with the exception of murder, but I was just about to handle a, a murder case. And to going to a firm where you were a very young associate, where, mm-hmm. you know, you have to humble yourself because you don't know the subject matter. You know the courtroom, you know the judges, you know how to talk to a jury and things like that. But you really have to develop the expertise in area. So it was a little as far as the litigation experience and how you were running cases on your own. You had to be willing to take a step back, learn your trade. But right away, what's interesting because they knew I had been a prosecutor, they were very comfortable sending me to court right away. Unlike other associates who had only been out like a a couple of years because they know I, you know, living in a courtroom, courtroom, because as a prosecutor, you probably spend about 75% of your time in a courtroom.
0: Absolutely. Well, I'm going to fast forward a bit because I'd like to hear about your current practice. So let's I want to go into a bit about that. But then also because you have been at Foley, I think. Well, you know, over 20, years, 20 now. years. Yeah. 20 years to get some of your reflections on legal practice. You know, I'd be remiss to not talk about bit about being a black man in big law because there's so, so few black equity partners. But first, can we talk about your practice today? The ins and outs, what type of matters do you typically handle?
1: Right. Yeah. As I mentioned on, I do strictly labor and employment. Uh, I would say my practice is divided up between. Uh, Counseling and advising clients on day-to-day issues, that's probably 60% of my practice and 40% is just litigation. It's all types of litigation. It could be, you know, FMLA, ADA claims. It could be discrimination claims, disability claims, you name it, the whole host of labor and employment matters. But then separate from the litigation is just, I also do some union negotiations, some labor arbitrations, but most of my time is spent like day-to-day just advising clients on different labor and employment issues. Like this morning, I probably spent half the morning, you know, advising a client on how to handle some Family Medical and Leave Act issues for an employee who they believe may be abusing FMLA. So we kind of investigate that and determining which absences we believe are legitimate versus not. Rather, the employee can be properly disciplined. So just basically helping companies, you know, kind of stay out of trouble. In other words, they call you to sort these issues. And one thing that I have seen change, at least in my over 20 years of doing this, is that companies are much more willing to be proactive and reach out for advice earlier than later. In other words, seek your counsel before they get sued or before they make their own decision, even if they're not sued. So that's why a lot of my time is spent with training counseling, just advising on day-to-day employment issues.
0: I think that's a really unique part of a labor and employment practice. I do think you can get it in other practices, particularly in corporate, actually. But I know when I was still a law student, and even when I was practicing, but before I became a labor and employment attorney, I would hear the word counseling. And I understood conceptually that it meant a client was calling to ask for, for assistance. But it wasn't until I was really in the practice that I appreciated the full scope of what that can mean. And I, as I've mentioned, some law students are starting to listen. So I, I think that's really helpful what you just described, but that being their first call when something's come up.
1: Yeah, that's, um, and that was kind of motivates me daily, frankly, is, is that the fact that clients call you as a, you hear the term trusted advisor, but, it, but, it, but it's real. They call you were real issues. Rather, because we're talking about a person's livelihood, right? Before you terminate an employee, you should get it right right? Before you Absolutely. lay someone off or you're doing a reduction in force, you know, you, you should get it right. So it is, I mean, I'm honored by the fact that there are clients who, who trust you to be their problem solver or, or to help them through these particular issues, because these are really important decisions that are affect, affecting lives. Unfortunately, let's say even in, in this day and age, companies have to make these hard decisions. But the fact that they will reach out to you to help with them just means a lot and really kind of motivates me to make sure we do the best job possible for them.
0: Well, and especially right now, you said in this day and age, but I know the employment group has been very busy because there's so many employment law ramifications of what's going on with the pandemic and the racial justice movement as well. I've actually had more touch points with the group because of that intersection, that overlap between labor and employment and diversity and inclusion.
1: Yes, yes. And the whole racial justice movement has actually you know, caused me to interact with colleagues in, in Foley who I have not interacted with before, you know, on, on the positive side. The, the number of allies who have stepped up to support, you know, the, the movement has been been frankly surprising, but very but very rewarding as well. And it also, I think, in my opinion, I was talking to one of our African-American colleagues the other day, it has actually brought our black attorney affinity group closer together because mm-hmm. it yeah I mean we have you know collaborated we've talked we video conference much more within the last few months than we have in the last few years frankly
0: and i should mention that you are the chair of the firm's black attorney affinity group yes so you've actually been the kind of leading the charge and and organizing that and creating that additional cohesiveness in this time. But before we even talk a little bit more about that, and it's funny, I've been reflecting on this because, of course, the the purpose of this podcast is truly to learn about everybody's individual path to law school, to Foley, about their practice. But when I talk to individuals who are diverse, often there's a reason to talk about how being diverse, how being a right. woman, how being gay, how being Black has affected that path. And, um, I've yet, I haven't had that many podcasts, had the opportunity to say, well, how, how did whiteness affect your experience of creating? <laughs> because it doesn't come up. right? Although I'm, I'm deciding whether or not that's something I should ask. This is an interesting discussion point. But with you, Phil, we know the stats with Black partners in large law firms. I don't know if you have any thoughts or reflections on, on your path and how you know, it was easier or harder You know, being a, being a Black man in big law.
1: Yeah, well, it was very hard. And there, and I've shared this story too. There was a time when I was a senior associate where I had one foot out the Foley door, so to speak. And because I I just, and and not necessarily because it was a racial issue, but just because of the dynamics at the time as to the folks who are working for, I just didn't feel the, the support. I just didn't feel the mentoring. So as I said, I had one foot out the Foley door and there was one partner who actually helped me pull that leg back in. Mm.
0: <laughs>
1: his name is uh, Tom Pence. He's a retired partner now, but he was in the Milwaukee office. So I I give him credit because what he did for me, I mean, here's this conservative Indiana University graduate, Milwaukee partner, white male, who gave me a lot of responsibility for, for two of his major clients who had major operations here in, in the Detroit market and both for automotive suppliers. And just the opportunities, I probably was a fifth, sixth year associate at the time. And he basically just handed me these cases, introduced me to these relationships and just trusted me. Because oftentimes we talked about mentors versus advisors versus champions. He was a champion. And and I call a champion is someone who can actually support you, but also put work on your plate. Like I can mentor you and encourage you and, and help you. But that only goes so far. The key is, I think, is finding at least one champion for, frankly, more as many as you can get who's actually going to take, you know, some ownership in in your development. Who's actually going to make a concerted effort, not by happenstance, to actually introduce you to those client relationships, give you those level of responsibilities and give you opportunity. To me, that's all that's all it's about being given the equal opportunity Mm -hmm. to show that you could you could handle this. And I was just fortunate enough to have someone like that who, you know, but but at the same time, of course, I had to do right by him. He's trusting some very, very large clients to me in relationships. And I'm handling some major matters here in Detroit, including class actions. So I had to step up to the plate, of course, which wasn't an issue. Like I said, just give me the opportunity. So I I think one of the, the problems is a lot of folks have not or feel they have not been given those those similar opportunities. And, and, that, and that and that is key. That is key because, you know, we're a corporation, right? This is mm-hmm. corporate America and we're a for-profit corporation, right? So it's really about the relationship with the client. So I, I think it's key, particularly for, for our young Black lawyers or even folks who are partners now, is you have to have those champions. And there has to be client relationships that you have made yourself indispensable to where the client asks for you. They stop calling and asking for their partner and say, Hey, mm-hmm. you know, can Phil handle this case? Or they just call you directly and send it to you directly. And of course you keep the relationship partner up to speed and make them aware of what's going on. But you you need to but you need to be given that opportunity, right? So if you're not given that opportunity. It's going to be very difficult. Like I said, I I had one foot out the door, and 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 he helped me pull it back. I'll pull it back in. <laughs> he really did. So
0: of course, what you described is always top of mind for me, given you know director of diversity and inclusion. But it's even more top of mind given where we are right now. I will frequently have people reach out to me, whether they be at Foley or even outside of the firm, and it'll you know a white partner or a white lawyer saying, Alexis. I am really impacted by what's happening regarding racial justice, you know, various shootings. I have listened to the the discussions that I know black people, I know the black people at my firm are not okay. Should I be reaching out? Should I be offering condolences? What can I be doing? And what I find I do is direct them to do the things you just said. Right. That I know there's this in this initial stuff. It's like, I, well, I, let me call the black associate and say, hey, I'm so sorry this happened today. But I, I'm like, that's not that your intention is good by wanting to show that you know that this is bad and shouldn't be happening. But what's even more useful is to channel that energy longer term to the mentorship, to the sponsorship, to the, and not just once, not that I'm for now, because it's the pandemic, I'm doing one Zoom call, but know that you're going to check in on them in three months and six months right? and build a relationship of trust.
1: Exactly. Yeah, right. Because um the reaching out, the showing support is important. It makes a difference, right? Because half this is, you know, is it's a mental struggle that as a black lawyer, you can't think about it every single day. Otherwise, it's overwhelming, right? And you and you have to practice, you have to function. But you're right, you 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 have to be a consistent, prolonged champion and mentor. And the example I always use is, you know, sometimes people sympathize with the cause, with the movement, but that only goes so far, right? You really have to take the the next step and, and reach out and invite someone to lunch or, well, with, with COVID, you have to make sure you're six feet apart, I guess. <laughs> but you can have lunch outside. I had lunch last week with last Friday with a client. We were outside at a restaurant and, and socially distanced and hadn't seen her in like seven months, so.
0: Well, right that either launch or that Zoom meeting, and this is sort of um, I don't know Alexis Robertson's theory, but but I do think what you may find with people of color in large law firms is it may take you longer to build that organizational trust with them, and so sometimes when you have that mentorship dynamic, that junior lawyer senior dynamic, senior lawyer dynamic, I think the more senior lawyer thinks, hey, I've extended my hand. Alexis knows she can call me if she needs something, but until that person really trusts and believes that you're you're genuinely interested in their career it can actually feel a bit like a job interview to them right right that like i call you call me i tell you how great things are and so for me to truly open up and say hey you know actually i'm a little concerned that i'm not getting traction here what would be your advice on getting more of x sort of work or working with this partner that may take more than that first coffee meeting and I think that's true with all humans, not just when you're, you know, trying to reach out to diverse associates. But it is something to keep in mind, like you said, that that long term willingness to to really engage in the relationship.
1: Yeah, I mean, it, it takes time to to build a relationships. It takes time, you know, no matter who you are, no matter what race or gender you are, to to build that trust. Like I, I used the example of, of Tom Pinson and, and the trust he put in me. I mean, initially, I handled some small matters for him, right? I, I mean, I had to earn that trust. He didn't just walk, come to Detroit one day and throw 10 cases on my desk, right? It started introducing me to his clients. It, it started with doing work for his client, getting some accolades from from his clients with them sending these nice complimentary emails and things like that. And, and then all of a sudden, the, you know, the floodgates open, which, 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 which was great.
0: Well, and switching gears a bit, something that we've been able to share in our Black Attorney Group meetings or Black Attorney Affinity Group meetings, as well as some of Foley's broader meetings really is... The personal experience of Black attorneys at the firm. And, you know, for whatever reason, maybe not everybody either at Foley or who's listened to this podcast may have heard those before. So, Phil, I'm wondering if you'd be willing to share, because I think often we look at someone like like you, Phil, like you've made it. Like you are an equity partner at Foley and Lardner. Whatever is going on in the world with race relations most certainly does not affect you because you have made it. And I'm curious if you'd be willing to share just a couple of examples of how, you know, the fact that you're a partner and a lawyer does not insulate you from, you know, being a black man in America, basically.
1: Right, and I'm glad you asked that because I'll give some examples. One thing that I've discussed since the movement started with several colleagues is don't assume because I'm here that I'm an equity partner, I've held different positions in the firm, I'm the managing partner of the Detroit office, Don't assume it was easy getting here and don't assume that I have not experienced and continue to experience the same things that, you know, you see African-Americans and blacks, you know, on TV and in our communities experiencing. Same thing. Like I said, sometimes the things are so overwhelming, you just can't think about them every day. I mean, I can give you an example from being denied a rental apartment. I can give you an example of me and my wife a realtor refusing to show us a house because they didn't want to sell the house to a black family. I can give you examples of, let's say, walking into a, a training session for a client in the hills of Virginia, and they looking at me like, like I was from Mars. <laughs> I mean, so what I say is, it's not that I have succeeded because there's a lack of racism or discrimination. I've, I've succeeded in spite of these type of challenges. And I, I was talking to one of my colleagues here in Detroit the other day. We were talking about the movement and I try to really kind of make him realize that, you know, the folks the George Floyd's that's that's me. That's my family. It's my brothers and, and, and sisters. And I told him, I said, you know, I said, when your son, he lives in a very nice, he's white and he lives in a very nice neighborhood. And he has a young son. I have a 13 year old son. I said, when your son says, for example, I you know I wanna go running around the neighborhood, I'm gonna go jogging or whatever. Do you have any concerns? He's like, no, not at all. I said, well, I said the other day, my son told me and my wife that he wanted to run track. I said, great. You want to run cross-country tra- track, uh, track? So we live in a, a white neighborhood. When he told me he wanted to go run around the neighborhood, right or wrong, my first response was fear. And that's what mm-hmm. I share with my class. I said, my first response was fear because I know from be working in law enforcement for six years myself, four as a probation officer, two as a prosecutor, I know what's going on. A lot of stuff just doesn't hit the hit the paper. I said about genuine fear because there are certain things I've seen, even in our community, that, that make me uncomfortable, right? And I said, those are kind of things that you you don't have to think about if, if, if you're not Black. That's just a Black lawyer. And when it comes to people who hold certain views of Blacks, it's not it doesn't change because you're a black lawyer or a black doctor, right? Mm-hmm. I mean, I've been followed in my car. I I mean you name it. I mean, it's basically happened from from like I said, trying to rent a house or apartment or buy a house or driving down the street or walking in a store or walking in a car dealership and no one greets you, but yeah, yeah. I mean, so so basically you have to again go back, you gotta have a champion. You you have to, you know, Have someone who's going to encourage you that, in spite of all these things that are going on, it's going to be tougher. I would be I would be lying if I said it's not going to be more difficult. But it it is. I consider these things as speed bumps, not roadblocks. I mean, and you just have to just you just have to roll over them, right? It's not going to be easier, and it's not going to be fair. But it is what it is. You know, until things change, which you know it probably won't change anytime soon. You just have to, you know. Just brace yourself and just continue to move forward. And and I think the sky is the limit. But on the flip side, I think being a black attorney in a firm like Foley presents opportunities as well that you have to really take advantage of. I mean, it definitely presents opportunities and it presents opportunities to to better the firm, to bring a diverse view. Mm -hmm. It presents opportunities to also, you know, assist the firm in bringing in business, because there are some general counsel and corporations that. If you don't bring a diverse team to the table, you're not going to get their work, right? Yes, we're seeing
0: more and more of that.
1: Exactly, exactly. So, because being one of my partners here, John Gill's joke about is that even in a pandemic, you know, a lot of the work that's helping keep us busy are coming from diverse and, and, and female general counsel.
0: Mm-hmm. Well, that's really powerful. Everything you sh- that you just said, especially these are speed bumps, not roadblocks. That's powerful. That's a quote right there. I'll get a <laughs> Phil Phillips me even have that quoted. Right, but right, right. something that also strikes me is that things can be both. So things right. can be both incredibly hard, frustrating, like we're talking about, yeah, Black folks and a lot of people, but let's talk about Black folks are having a hard time right now. But at the same time, and even though organizations need to do a lot of work, you can still really enjoy your organization. There can be a lot of really great things about it. One of the things that attracted me to Foley was I felt like the foundation, like the bedrock of the firm was where it needed to be where it needed to be in order to continue building upon it.
1: No question. No question.
0: And the fact that once again, there's no firm who's like an Amlaw 50 that can really brag about the number of black partners it has. But my experience way back in 2006 as a summer was when Foley did have a number of black partners once again should still be, we want more now than we had then, but indicated to me that was before we were all talking about it as much.
1: Right. And speaking of Foley in particular, right, for any law students who may be listening, if particularly any Black law students who may be listening, if Foley didn't have the type of foundation that you refer to and the culture and the commitment I see from our leadership, Jay Rothman and the Management Committee There's no way I would have hung around for January 2nd will be 20 years that I've been here. I never thought I would be anywhere for 20 years. So if it didn't have that foundation, if I did not feel supported and valued, I would have left a long time ago. Like I said, there was a period of time for different reasons. I had one leg out the door, but separate from that, that was over 10 years ago. (laughs) That was over 10 years ago. But if the firm did not have that that commitment, yeah. I mean, I, I frankly have, as you can probably imagine, you know, even before, particularly before COVID hit, you know, the, the a lot of firms are trying to diversify their partner ranks in there.
0: Mm-hmm. So
1: it is frequent that we get calls from headhunters.
0: Frequent. Uh, I have no doubt.
1: I don't even respond. Right. Because I look at it this way. Why? Why? Why would I leave Foley? There's absolutely no reason why we're leaving Foley because of the foundation that we're actually we're, we're actually talking about. So
0: that's also really powerful. I appreciate you for sharing that. So as we're wrapping up here, I want to jump to my, you know, your advice to to law students or someone looking forward to now na- or looking at potentially navigating legal career. But before I do, is there anything else you'd want to add before we we go to sort of your your words of advice?
1: No, only that you know. The, my career has definitely been challenging, um, but the the rewards have more than outweighed that. You know, it, it has given me both the firm and my practice and our clients have, has, you know, given me opportunities that I never imagined before. It has allowed me to provide a life for my kids that I didn't even dream about when I, I didn't like I said I didn't know a certain world or life existed. Like I have kids, they're in very good schools and they're doing very well. And uh, maybe I'm a little hard on them than I should because they have no excuses <laughs> not to succeed.
0: I things are looking too easy for them. You're like, no, no, you need right, to know the right. real thing.
1: Yeah. And, and, I, and I joke with them sometime when they say, I'm hungry. I was like, oh, you don't know hunger. I yeah. <laughs> tell you about <laughs> hunger. They just roll their eyes and walk into the room. But...
0: I want you to email me when you just remove all the food from the house and there's only <laughs> peanut butter and jelly exactly. or maybe just peanut butter.
1: <laughs> exactly. Exactly. Right. They'll probably go on Amazon and order some food or something. That's right. That's how they'll they just, live
0: it. That's right. They'll just, they'll just order it <laughs> Rub online. Hub or something. <laughs> okay. But then, so, yeah, you're, you're parting advice to that. I often um, situate as that law student who's listening and is just wondering, how do I navigate a legal career? What's your advice for me, Phil? Or anybody else who you'd like to to speak to, but this is your your moment.
1: Yeah, I would say, and and particularly just going back to starting off your career, right, particularly if you're a law student, is, you know, find something that you you love, you know, because it makes, if you love your your job or what you're doing, whatever, whether you're a corporate lawyer or a litigator or or IP lawyer, find an area of practice that you love and and really motivates you. And that makes, first of all, that makes life a lot easier. It makes you want to get up every day and serve your clients. But it's also important that, you know, some people decide to, you know, bill a ton of hours or work for a firm that basically consumes your life. And that's not fully, frankly. Find the right balance, right? Because one thing I, that I've, I, obviously we work a lot of hours and it can be very demanding. My wife also works a lot. Of, she's a physician. She works a lot of hours, but it's important to find the right balance, right? Because I just don't see the value and having a successful career, if you don't have time for family, I just don't see the value. I mean, for example, I'm raising a big family. Us getting together during the holidays is is remarkable. It's not like it was back in the day where we're fighting for the food on the table. But find the right balance between you know you, your work and your personal life. Because if you all you do is work. I think you know yeah. there's a lot you're going to be giving away. So find the right balance. Find a, a a firm and a practice that really drives you, and and just you know work hard. It's it's hard work, but it's definitely definitely rewarding.
0: Well, and I think it's safe to say that the more you like your practice, that you're passionate for it, and that you like your firm, the easier it'll be to find that balance. So I think that's fantastic advice. Exactly. And then, Phil, if people have questions for you, can they feel free to find your Infant Bullies website and reach out?
1: Absolutely. Absolutely.
0: All right. And with that, I just have to say thank you so much for joining me today, Phil. It's been great to have you on the podcast.
1: Thank you. Thanks for having me.
0: Thank you for listening to The Path and the Practice. I hope you enjoyed the conversation and join us again next time. And if you did enjoy it, please share it, subscribe, and leave us a review as your feedback on the podcast is important to us. Also, please note that this podcast may be considered attorney advertising and is made available by Foley and Lardner LLP for informational purposes only. This podcast does not create an attorney-client relationship. Any opinions expressed herein do not necessarily reflect the views of Foley and Lardner LLP, its partners, or its clients. Additionally, this podcast is not meant to convey the firm's legal position on behalf of any client, nor is it intended to convey specific legal advice.